Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Man, we had an outstanding kids program last night. They're probably wondering what this uh, stage uh, prop is all about. Um, no, I'm not going to dance and sing here this morning. We do have a Bible study here. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke. This is Certainty in a World of Doubt, the Gospel According to Luke, subtitle as we work through the uh, Christmas holiday um, Christmas gifts, and we are unwrapping blessing here this morning. Also, grab your sermon notes out. A couple thoughts there on the top of your sermon notes. Uh, I, I ended last weekend's message with this point, pretty, pretty profound point. God is always for us. God is always for us. Do you guys believe that, that God is always for us? That is, uh, with this, God is always for us because in Christ, our sins can never be held against us, and this is what ultimately transforms us. That's a pretty powerful, very profound statement, important statement for us to understand. God is always for us because in Christ, what Christ has done for us, our sins can never be held against us. And this is what ultimately transforms us. There's a whole lot of verses that, that back that up. I, I gave you a few there, Romans 8.1 and then Romans 8.31 and 32. So here's the bottom line as it relates to that. It's not, it's not a changed life that brings his blessings, God's blessings. It's not you get your act together, change your life, and then he will bless you. Actually, it's his blessings that bring a changed life. That when you understand all that you have in Christ Jesus, that's what begins to transform your life. Therefore, how critical is it uh, to our spiritual well-being that we revel regularly in God's blessings? Would you guys say that that's pretty critical? Is that pretty important for your spiritual well-being? Yeah, absolutely. Unbelievably critical because, let me give you just a couple reasons. You're going to see as we walk through our study here this morning. Uh, here's one, is that the best defense to the lies we hear in our heads is the rehearsal of God's blessings, driving them deep into our hearts. That's your best defense. And then, um, and along with that is that nothing sets the mood, the weather, the climate in your life like the thoughts you entertain in your head. And so that's where we're headed um, we're going to revel, we're going to bask in the blessings that God has for us, as you will see. Uh, but before we read our text and unpack these notes, oh, I've got one other thing. Look at this equation on your notes. As you guys well know, theology is the study of what? God. Yeah, theology is a study of God. And doxology, you guys know what doxology is? We sang a, a song, it's kind of a doxology. Doxology is an expression of praise to God. So therefore, theology minus doxology is dead orthodoxy. So if you just come to church, you check the church box, kind of going through the motions, heard some great theology, but if it doesn't move you, if it doesn't stir you, if you don't take that and begin to worship God with that, dead orthodoxy. Uh, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. That's what it tells us in 1 Corinthians 8, 1. So you can be filled with a lot of theology, and yet if it doesn't stir you, it should make you a more loving person, more loving towards God and towards others. Doxology minus theology is idolatry. It's, it's an addiction to a religious high or uh, emotionalism, or it also involves a man-made God. It's a, God is a figment of your imagination if you don't have a good basis 
for your experience with God if you don't have a good theo- theological basis. But here's the, here's the equation that works. Theology plus doxology is life-liberating, soul-satisfying psychology. John 4, 23 and 24, we are to worship him in spirit and in truth. Truth is our theology, spirit would be our doxology. And that is really, really healthy. That's healthy for our well-being. And so, okay, so now I'm ready to pray. And uh, I will pray, and then we will uh, take a look at our text and unpack these notes. Would you bow your heads with me? God, it tells us... uh, Father, it tells us in your word, Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, his blessings. Most of our problems, we admit, most of our problems are the result of forgetting your many blessings, which are innumerable. We are blessing amnesiacs. And if our adversary can't get us to doubt your existence, he will try to get us to doubt your goodness. So we pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us how to to revel regularly in the reality of who you are and what you have done for us and are doing for us your innumerable blessings until we are lost in wonder, love, and praise transforming every part of our lives so that we can more and more put on display your beauty and glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. So let's take a look at this text. Now, see what we're going to do this morning. Uh, Typically, we will read the whole text, and then we'll talk about it. We're not going to read the whole text this morning. We're just going to work through it. We'll take a few verses at a time, and then we'll talk about it, read a few more verses, talk about it, kind of walk our way through the text. This will finish up chapter one, and then we'll head into chapter two on uh, New Year's, uh, not New Year's Eve, but Christmas Eve, and talk about the birth of Christ. Uh, These are events leading up to Jesus' birth. And uh, so starting in uh, verse 57, chapter 1 of Luke, this is the birth of John the Baptist. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Don't you rejoice with folks when they have a baby, when a family has a newborn, and they post their pictures on Facebook, and everybody's liking it, and everybody's celebrating? Well, that's what's happening here. Everybody's just having a good time. They're celebrating the birth, uh, the birth of uh, John the Baptist to Zacharias and Elizabeth. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And, uh, and then it says, and they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. So obviously they would pass on their name to the next generation. But, but Zechariah had been visited by an angel who said specifically, you're going to have a son in your old age. They were both beyond childbearing years. And you're to name him John. And so they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Now keep in mind, remember Zechariah, what what's going on with him? He's deaf and he's mute, okay? And so they make signs to him. He only makes signs to people if they can't hear, okay? So, uh, so he's both that. He can't talk, he can't hear. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. Please name him John before God kills me, okay? Okay, that's not actually in the text, but that's what I'm thinking, I'm thinking that's what he's experiencing. He said, listen, I can't even talk. I can't even hear. God's 
kind of shut me up. So please name him John because that's what the angel told me to name him and I don't want to have any more discipline come my way. That's what he's thinking. And they all wondered, notice verse 64, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. The first thing that came out of his mouth after this nine months of uh, silence and solitude, blessing God. That's where we get the title of this uh, weekend's message. And fear came on all of their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. They're like, they're blown away by this. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? John the Baptist, that's, what we're talk- that's who we're talking about here. For the hand of the Lord was with him. So he's the forerunner of Jesus predicted in Malachi some 400 years earlier, which the writer here, Luke is just saying, are you kidding me? I mean, this is factual, this is historical. This isn't legend, this is evidential. Because this John the Baptist, forerunner of Jesus, can appoint to Jesus. This was predicted in the Old Testament. This is just fulfillment in the Old Testament. A couple of thoughts here. It'll be your first fill in the blank. But let me kind of bring you up to speed here with what we talked about a few weeks ago when we started this. We looked at the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth and saw the angel that came to their life, promised them a baby in their old age. And one of the points that I made there was that Zechariah's response to the angel was unbelief. And I shared with you... Um, the second week of this series, so this is the fifth week in chapter one. Second week, we uh, un- unwrapped the gift of promise, and uh, Zacharias responded with unbelief, and I shared with you, I told you that my unbelief casts suspicion on God's greatness and goodness. So when God makes promises, and I kind of I have unbelief in response to those promises, it casts suspicion. It basically says, ah, you're not that great and you're not that good. There is a hardness of heart, a jadedness that comes from years of trial, difficulty, and disappointment if we're not careful. All of us take hits in life, and over time our life and our hearts can become hard, and and it's seen in our life through unbelief. We go, yeah, right, God's good, God's great, are you kidding me? And that's a little bit of what his attitude was kind of displaying through his unbelief after receiving this promise from an angel. I mean, my goodness, you have an angel show up? You know, when he's burning the incense, he's in the uh, temple, that's pretty profound, and yet he doesn't believe that. And, um, and so because we struggle with this hardness of heart, we need our life's discipline. And in fact, childlessness brought extreme reproach to Zachariah and Elizabeth, so they struggled. We all struggle. My progress in the faith will be disciplined must be disciplined. We all need discipline. That's what we see with Zechariah, verse 20 of chapter 1 of Luke. And behold, this is the angel speaking to Zechariah, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So what did we call that? We called it a divine time out. You're going to take a time out, dude, because you don't believe me. And uh, silence and solitude is really learning how to take a break from the chaos of life to behold the glory of Christ and become whole. We all need it from time to time. Sometimes we get a divine time out. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say a divine time out? You know, it could be loss of job, it could be loss of health, it could be loss of relationship, it could be relocation of your family to a, to a new city, it could be a number of things like that. 
But sometimes we need to do a self-imposed timeout, a time of silence and solitude, because we just need desperately to, to, to rid ourselves of this unbelief. In fact, look at your notes there. What do you do when unbelief is creeping in and anxiety and bitterness is taking over? You gotta be aware of it. I'm gonna be talking a little bit more about some of this uh, on Christmas Eve about the peace that God wants to bring in our life and some things that keep us from that peace and being aware of that, but, but what do you do when unbelief is creeping in and anxiety and bitterness is taking over? You need to learn how to bask in his blessings. And so you get this idea that Zechariah was basking in the blessings of God during this divinely uh, appointed silence and solitude, this divine time out. We all need that. And by the way, you don't wait for bad things to happen before you build a spiritual arsenal or equity. This dude seems like he's got a, a spiritual equity arsenal built up. Because what we're gonna read in a few minutes here through his, uh, his blessing is that he's quoting a whole lot of heavy, heavy theology and a lot of Bible. Just like Mary, remember Mary's uh, Magnificat? The song of praise that we studied last week, packed full of Bible and theology. So she was saturated in God's word. Zacharias is saturated in God's word. And God help you when you go through difficult times and you have no spiritual equity. God help you. You're not gonna have the resources. These folks had the resources, so it was evident during this time of silence and solitude that he had divinely imposed that the first words that come out of his mouth, blessing, blessing to God. That's what should come out of our mouths when we have those times of silence and solitude and we're really connecting with God and, and doing that. And so that's important. So Zechariah's prophecy, so here's what it is. Blessed be the Lord God who has. And so now we move into his blessing and what he says. And so verses 67 through 71, and you'll see with each one, there's three sections, and you're gonna have to study this on your own, but what Zacharias is saying shows you his deep theology. He's saying that Jesus is fulfilling something here. The first one is that Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant found in the Old Testament. You can study further on that in 2 Samuel 7, verse 11b to 16. Let me read verse 67 of Luke chapter one. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, okay, let me just talk just uh, a moment here. It's fascinating that in, in every case where someone is spirit-filled in Luke's nativity account, the result is worship. So oftentimes people say, well, what is the spirit-filled life? Well, that's, that's the spirit-filled life. Christ becomes so real to you that your difficulties, your problems, your temptations seem really small. In other words, you're gonna have a sense of, wow, God is great, and mmm, God is good. That's, that's what, you're gonna have an overwhelming sense of that. That's what worship is, wow and mmm. And so you get that here. Here's another thing, too, is that this is called, what he's gonna say here, it's called, uh, church tradition calls it Benedictus, because it's the first word in Latin. In fact, you can see that in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Blessing. Just as Mary's uh, song of praise was magnificat, 
which is my soul magnifies. It's based on that word magnifies the Lord. So this is about the benefits that we have in God. And he's going to go through it and recite the benefits of God. Now, now this is typically, I'm going to kind of take you on a journey with me. This is how I study God's word. And as I kind of work through the text and I kind of do a devotional reading of it, I begin to ask myself questions like, well, what's the big idea? Well, the big idea here is blessing. He's just, he's just, He's reveling in the blessings of God, and then he goes through and begins to list a number of the blessings, and that's what we're going to do. We're just going to bask in the blessings of God this morning and see what all these blessings are. And so I continue reading verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has, here's the first one, he has visited, and here's the second one, and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. There's the third one. In the house of his servant David. Oh, there it is. David, the Davidic covenant being fulfilled as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. In other words, this is not just some kind of knee-jerk reaction to God and to our dilemma. No, this is something that he planned years ago and prophesied and foretold of it in the Old Testament. So as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from, the, from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Okay, let me give you some more fill in the blanks here. And so blessed be the Lord God who has visited us. That's the first one, visited us. Psalm 8.4, I gave you some cross-reference here. Your, your best commentary for scripture is always scripture. And so Romans 8, 4 is a fascinating verse. There's where, Paul, uh, where uh, David is saying, uh, um, he says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the stars and the moon, how you have set them in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you, and in the King James, it actually uses the word, but if you look up in the Hebrew, it actually says, visiteth him. That you, uh, some of our translations say that you care about us. So you not only are you mindful of us, but you care about me. But literally, literally the Hebrew says, no, he visiteth us. He, he comes to us. Certainly David had that visitation from God, had interaction with God. We see that throughout the Old Testament. But we also believe that David is speaking prophetically into the future when, when God is going to visit us. He's going to come to this planet Earth. He's going to visit us. So here's the question. How do we know there is a God? Maybe someone's asked you that question before. Here's a good response. I know there's a God because he showed up here. He came here. Okay? Is that a good answer? Yeah, like he showed up here? You didn't know that? It's called Christmas, the birth of Jesus. Hello? I mean, don't, don't be sarcastic like I probably would be. But, um, but you just kind of get him to thinking. He says, well, how do you know there's a God? Well, he, he showed up here. By the way, turn to the person next to you and see if they know this. Uh, Emmanuel. What does that mean? Emmanuel? What does Emmanuel mean? Real quick. Okay. How many are thinking, what, what, what were you guys thinking with that? Emmanuel? Oh, yes. That was easy, huh? But there's a lot of people who don't really know that and they don't connect the dots. God with us? God with us? Yeah. God showed up here. How do we know there's a God? Well, there's a lot of different ways that we know there's a God. We know that through creation, conscience, commandments. He wrote a book. You knew that, didn't you? He wrote a book, but he showed up here. He came here. In fact, even Jesus said as he was dealing with his disciples, his disciples said, uh, Jesus, show us the Father and we'll be cool with that. And he's like, hello, guys. Listen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
In fact, he goes on in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. What was he saying? He's saying, hey, listen, I'm the way to the Father. I'm the truth, the very revelation of the Father, uh, way, truth. I'm the very life. You want to have God in your life? It's me. It's all about me. That's what he was saying. And so he's visited us. When we celebrate Christmas, man, he showed up here. We can have God in our lives. Here's the next one, redeemed us. I'm gonna spend just a moment longer on this idea because the first thing that came to mind, I was thinking about a story. It's uh, from the book of Hosea. How many have ever read uh, the, the book of Hosea, Old Testament book? How many didn't even know that there was a book by that title in the Old Testament? Okay, okay. Nobody raised their hand, but you didn't know about the book Hosea. But, uh, but it's Old Testament, it, he's a minor prophet, not because he's, he's less than the bigger guys, but it's just, it's a smaller book as compared to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Isaiah. Just a smaller book, but it's a phenomenal read. It helps us to understand redeem because this was the first thing that came to mind. So, so I'm reading through this devotionally and I'm asking myself, so okay, what does this mean and how does this apply to my life? And the first thing that came to mind for me was this story, so I need to tell you a little bit about the story of Hosea. So let me do a quick survey of that book. You'll be out of here by about one when I'm finished. Okay, no, you won't. This will be really quick. But Hosea is a prophet of God. Prophets communicate the very nature and character of God to the people. God tells Hosea to marry a wife who would be unfaithful to him. You guys now familiar with the story? Maybe a little bit more? He told Hosea to marry a prostitute so that not only would he understand God's heartache, but also demonstrate his never-failing love for his people. Now, as you're reading through the book, Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, Hosea marries Gomer. Uh, not a good Bible name for your daughter, okay? <laughs> Just when you're, when you're looking through the Bible for a name for your child, whether it be your son or your daughter, not a good one, okay? I don't think anybody here has named their child Gomer, but that's not a good one. Hosea marries Gomer, who immediately becomes unfaithful. She, buries, she, bears, she bears three children, the last of whom isn't even his, Hosea's, who he names Lo-Ami, which means not mine. So let me introduce you to my kids. This one's mine, this one's mine. Oh, that one, not mine. That's rude, but that's in the storyline. That's in the storyline. That's the, the child's name. When you move from chapter 1 to chapter 2 of Hosea, verses 5 through 8, verse 14, she leaves Hosea for another lover who is abusive. She doesn't even have the basic necessities of life. Hosea tries to bring her back, but she doesn't respond. And what's crazy about the story, I just absolutely love the story, he provides for her the basic necessities to keep her alive, and she doesn't even know it. I mean, he's showing up to her, her door and putting groceries and gifts at her door. She doesn't want to have anything to do with him, but he says, you know, she's going to die if, she, if I don't provide for her. So he's showing up kind of secretly and dropping these things off at her door and still taking care of her. Oh, by the way, as we work through this, you're kind of beginning to see a little bit here that, uh, yeah, indeed, we, we are, you and I are Gomer, and Hosea is God. That's the picture. Because something really profound happens in Hosea chapter 3. It's, it's, it's almost outrageous, and it's moving, 
and it's stirring. And in fact, Gomer is, is being sold at the slave market in chapter three of Hosea, and uh, she's being sold by her adulterous lover. She has either fallen into debt or her lover is a pimp, and uh, she has lost her marketability. And so she has, uh, she's, she's stripped naked so the bidders could see what they are getting. And it's, it's not hard to imagine that she had her eyes closed to shield herself from her moment of her greatest degradation. The bidding starts and suddenly she begins to realize that one of the voices bidding for her is her husband. It's amazing. It's amazing. And she's thinking, what is he doing after all I've done to him? And her husband says, 15 shekels and a homer of barley, sold. It was the average price of a slave. You see that and you read that in Hosea chapter three. Now listen to me. That's redemption. That's redemption. That's what he did for you and I. In fact, it tells us in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, for it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from your former empty way of life that was passed on to you from your forefathers, but it was with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He died for you. He loves you. He gave his life for you. See, when you bask in the reality of that, that you are redeemed, it transforms your life. When that goes deep into your heart, you're not the same. Believe me, you are not the same. And that's the story, that's what he's saying. This is what he's reveling in. You need to revel in that regularly. And even if it means going back to the story of Hosea and kind of working through the implications of that, it was with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish, or defect. And then here's the next one. So he's visited us, he's redeemed us, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us. That's your next fill in the blank. And this is just the first few verses of this, this blessing. Blessed be the Lord God who has visited us, redeemed us, raised up a horn of salvation for us. That's uh, verse 69a of our text. This is a common expression in the Old Testament as a symbol of strength. 2 Samuel 22.3 in the Old Testament talks about that. Psalm 18.2, listen to what Psalm 18.2 says. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation. There it is, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. What is he saying there? My strength, my stability, my stamina all comes from God. That's what we have. Now, let me ask you this, and I want you to think about this. If God truly lives in you, shouldn't you expect to be different from those who don't have God living in them? Does that make sense? Is that good logic? Yeah, in fact, it tells us in Romans 8, 11, if the spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then the spirit that raised Christ from the dead will make alive your, your mortal bodies, this life. In fact, so let me ask you this question. When was the last time you undeniably saw the Holy Spirit at work in you? Another question for you. Have you ever been amazed or has anyone ever been amazed at, 
at your love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, see, all I'm saying and what he's telling us here is that you have that, that kind of potential and privilege and power available to you. Raised up a horn of salvation for us. Strength, stamina, stability for your life unlike anyone else can know because you know the living God. That's what he's saying here. Okay, let's continue reading. The next section, so he talked about there, Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant. Now he's gonna talk about how Jesus fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. You can read more about that in Genesis 12 and 15. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, there it is, to grant us that we being, here's the next one, being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without, so he tells us why he wants us to be delivered from our enemies, so that we might serve him without fear, that would be boldness, so we can serve him with boldness, in holiness, that's devotion, and righteousness, that's right living, before him all our days, an audience of one, living for God. So blessed be the Lord God who has, here's the next fill in the blank, granted us deliverance from our enemies. Granted us deliverance from our enemies. Now, what does that mean? Now, here's what's crazy is that the first century believers and uh, Mary... Zechariah, Elizabeth, they were Messianic Jews awaiting the Messiah. They actually thought that he was gonna come and set them free from their political oppressors. They were wrong. Eventually he would do that. That would be his second coming. But in his first coming, he's gonna set them free from their personal oppressors, their personal enemies. And so the question is, is what are our personal enemies? Okay, this is what I wanna do again. And and I know some of you probably don't like this, but uh, I'm trying to stretch you a little bit because I love you and I'm trying to get you to think, but I want you to discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Uh, what are our three enemies that we have to face every day? And you need to know what these enemies are. So there's three enemies that we face every day. You need to be aware of them. Discuss it with the folks sitting around you and we'll talk about it real quick. Okay, how many were thinking maybe uh, the people sitting around you right now? Okay, some of you are like pointing them out right now. Okay, no, actually, you've got a a worse enemy than those sitting around you uh, or people, you know, you live around or whatever, or family members you have to see this uh, during the holidays or whatever. Actually, the Bible refers to three enemies. I've got them written down here. They're found in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You can look that up on your own. But I've alliterated them with the letter S, and it's easy to remember, society, Satan, and sin. How many were thinking along those lines? You guys get that? So you got a society, you got a culture, you got a belief system and a culture that's totally contrary to what the Bible teaches. You also have Satan, you have an adversary that's gunning for you, he's gonna try to take you down. And then of course you've got sin, that's your own sinful nature. And we all struggle with that. We're, we're sinners by nature and by choice. But let's take this a little bit deeper so that we can begin to understand really what our enemies are, another way of seeing our enemies. And I put it down in your notes, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. It really talks about 
uh, uh, the world, not to love the things of the world. If you love the things of the world, you don't have really a love for God like you should. And the way that you love, if you really love God like you should, you're not going to have a love for the things of the world. And then he defines what those things of the world are. And this, this is really dealing with both society and, and then this, our sinful hearts. But the King James uses kind of more of a different language. It calls it the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. How many are familiar with that kind of language when I say that? Probably not, not many. Okay, there's a few of us. So here's how the ESV puts it. ESV puts it like this. These three uh, enemies within society and even maybe even within our own heart is that there's the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions. That, that might even be hard to really, okay, what does that mean? How does that apply? Well, this is how I would put it. So it would be pleasures, the pleasures of life, positions, promotions, and then the possessions. So if you don't like that one, here's another one. Girls, glory, and gold, okay? How do you like that one? (laughs) Yeah, so girls, pleasures of life, glory, hey, look at me, look how great I am, look how much I've accomplished, look how much I've achieved. And then the goal, money, bank account. could be. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. The problem is, is when those things become God kind of things in our life, when they begin to take the place of God in our life, that we begin to, and that's what he talks about, we begin to love the things of this world more than we love God, God and his word. And so he has granted us deliverance from our enemies so that, here's the next fill in the blank, so that we can boldly live holy, belonging to him. Because see, when these things begin to take the place of God, which it can be a marriage relationship, it can be a bank account, becomes our security, or it can be how our kids turn out, it can be our career advancement. If those things don't go the way as planned, guess what? You're crashing and burning. Because that's, that's your identity, that's your sense of security, that's your sense of well-being. We talk about that stuff around here all the time. And so he's granted us deliverance from our enemies so that we can boldly live wholly belonging to him. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, he has set us free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, holiness. Holiness? That sounds boring. No, 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 no. No, holiness is far from being boring. It's the most exciting life you could ever live. Holiness, wholeness, sanctification. Holiness is belonging wholly to God, giving him your heart's deepest loyalty and affection, being so happy in God's sin loses its appeal. It's almost like the more you see what you have in him and his greatness and goodness, you begin to see the things of this world and there's no achievement, accomplishment, acquisition of of great things. There's no romance. There's no bank account. There's no uh, girl gold or glory that comes close to what you have in, in Christ Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's what holiness is. Like, wait a minute, what I have in him is so much bigger, better than what I have in, in the world. And that's, so holiness is being so happy in God, sin loses its appeal. So the more your heart is ravished, so he's granted us deliverance from our enemies so that we can boldly live wholly belonging to him. So this is about a heart that's ravished by God's love. So the more your heart is ravished by God's love, for you, the less it will be held hostage to lesser things, such as girls' glory in gold, romance, career, money. See, if God is your exceeding joy, as the, uh, as the psalmist says in Psalm 43, 4, he says, I'm going to God my exceeding joy. I love that language. 
If God is your exceeding joy, you can have earthly joys, earthly joys, girled, glory, and gold. You can have earthly joys threatened, blocked, or lost without excessive, inordinate anxiety, anger, and and despair. Are you guys tracking with me there? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like, see, if he's the love of your life, even if you do lose any of those things, they're secondary to the primary love of your life, which you can never lose. That's why it's important you bask in the reality of that regularly, because it protects you. It helps you. It only took me a couple decades to learn that one as it related to my marriage relationship. I became a much better husband when I began to find God as the love of my life and stop trying to make my wife do and give to me what I should be getting from God. I did the same thing with my kids, did the same thing you know, with my job. I did that with multiple jobs that I've had. And it's, it's gonna mess with you. It's gonna mess you up. And he sets us free from making anything more important to us than him. Because there's unbelievable freedom in knowing him and, and being in holy belonging to him. Only he can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. Okay, verses 76 through 79, this even gets richer, gets better. And so Jesus fulfills the new covenant. That's what he talks about here in these verses, verses 76 through 79, new covenant. Verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Who's he talking about there? John the Baptist, right? To give knowledge of salvation, here's the next on the list, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because, oh my goodness, this landed on me this last week, this verse right here, because of the tender mercy of our God I begin to do a little quick research on that tender. What does that tender mean? This sounds a little gross. It might sound a little gross to you, but it's actually there's something much richer and deeper here. The word tender means bow. What? That's weird. Yeah, it's actually, it means deep in your gut, just way down deep in your gut. I was helping a brother out this last week that was sharing uh, a little bit about what was going on in his life, and it hurt me right here in my gut. It was like, oh, man, I felt bad for him. I wanted to pray for him. I've been praying for him. So that's what he's talking about. Ah, oh, tender mercy. So that can be a, it can be a kind of a bad thing when you hear of a, you get that phone call, that dreaded phone call, and it just like hits you. You hear about a loved one or whatever, so it's right down there. But also it can be a very good thing. You want the best for them. You love them. When you have this deep affection, that's what it's saying, deep mercy. Tender mercy. Tender mercy. That's what he says. Why did he do all of this for us? He has tender mercy towards you. He has this deep affection for your well-being. That's what mercy means, your well-being. Oh, my goodness. I began to reflect on that this last week, and it began to kind of drop from my head into my heart, and I was overwhelmed. I was reminded of my wife, this time of the year, typically makes these uh, homemade sweet rolls, and uh, she doesn't. She gives them out to, you know, uh, to relatives, and, and this is kind of tradition for us, and, and it's, it's an old grandma recipe. It's from my mom's side of the family, Grandma Ford's recipe, and they used to talk about it all the time, but nobody ever made them, and then finally Nancy got that recipe and started making them, and so she makes these, uh, these sweet rolls, and so she was like making sweet rolls like crazy this last week, and I said, I, I hate it when you do this. Why do you do this to me? Because... Uh, I'm trying to watch the calories, but that just puts the calories right through the roof. But what she does with these sweet rolls, she takes this dough, and it's kind of rolled out like this, and then she, uh, 
She let, kind of rolls it in butter. I'm going in more detail than what I've done in the earlier service. So, But she rolls it in butter, just rolls it sopping in butter, and then rolls it in sugar and cinnamon. It rolls that and then wraps it up, lets it rise, puts it in the oven, bakes it, brings it out, and then lavishes it. <laughs> lavishes it with this uh, buttercream icing. And that's why I'm just kind of hanging out in the kitchen the whole time. <laughs> so here's, here's the deal. I ate uh, wait, probably way too many of those this last week because I'm the taste tester just to make sure that they're okay. Okay, so I taste tested them. And as I was eating my 10th one, uh, as I was eating my 10th one this last week, chasing it with a cup of coffee, it was like a, it was like a trip to the moon, believe me. It's like, ah, I could hear angels singing, and I, and I say all that to say that was nothing compared to what I was experiencing as I was reading this, and I began to realize that his tender mercy, why is he giving me all these blessings? His tender mercy, that he, you have a creator. Your creator has deep affection for you. He has deep affection for your well-being. That's overwhelming. And if that could get a hold of your life and you could revel in that regularly, before your feet hit the floor in the morning, you are unstoppable. You can face anything if you could remember that. He is for you and not against you. I mean, that's, that's powerful. And that's, I was having just a little bit of an experience in that. He says, whereby, check this out. I mean, I told you it was going to get better. It just gets better as you read through this. It's like he starts off kind of slow, and he's going, and by the time he hits the end of this blessing, Zechariah, that is, he's like, boo, he's nailing it. This is good stuff. I'm like, wow, unbelievable. Listen to what he says. Whereby, so after he says, because of the tender, the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Anybody ever experienced kind of darkness in your life? Just feel down in the dumps, depressed, kind of wondering what's going on? He's talking about how we can get out of that. Let me give you some more fill in the blanks here. So, Blessed be the Lord God who has given us rich, endless supply, a rich, endless supply. That's your next three fill in the blanks. Rich, endless supply of healing and strength and love and comfort and motivation and transformation. And the notes aren't long enough for me to list all of the great blessings that we have in salvation. Because that's what he's talking about there in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation. That's knowledge of salvation. Rich, endless supply of all of these things and fullness of life beginning with forgiveness. Why? Next, next couple fill in the blanks. Because he is moved with deep affection for our total well-being. That's verse 78. Tender mercy. How many this time of year, you really enjoy giving gifts to your children, and if you're old like me, you might have grandchildren, you like giving them to your grandchildren. You guys, okay. There's only a few of us like that. Okay, okay, so you guys, so, okay, more of you raised your hand, okay. You guys are a little slow here this morning, okay? Okay, you guys are, th oh, you're writing. You're writing notes down, okay, okay. Okay, let me ask that question again. You finished up with your notes? Okay, look up here. How many love giving good gifts to your children? Okay, all of you. Most of you, some of you don't. You don't like giving good gifts. No, I don't like giving anything to anybody. 
that's just the way it is. No, no, you, you find great delight. I mean, many of you, most of you, all of you probably found great delight in buying those angel tree gifts. We lavished a lot of folks with, with gifts. And there's unbelievable blessing and delight in that. This is what he says in 7.11 of Matthew. If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more? So when, when we give ki uh, our kids gifts and our grandkids gifts, and we see the delight in their eyes, and we're like, yeah, I love this. I love this more than you love it, probably. And you probably love the gift, but I love it even more than you. That's what I'm thinking. And I'm just thinking. And then I get, have one of those spiritual experiences, like, if I'm having some, so much delight in giving my kids and my grandkids gifts, how much more does my Father in heaven, oh my goodness, tender mercy, he loves me that much. He loves giving me good things. That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, so when you bask in the reality of it, God, you just, your, your heart's towards me. You love me. And uh, the enemy would tell you otherwise. If he can get in your head and get you to doubting his, his goodness, and that's where he's, he's going to get a hold of you. That's what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden, but that's where he works. You begin to doubt his goodness. And, and so, because he has moved with deep affection, 1 John 3, 1, here's where I've, I use this probably annually with my wife's sweet rolls. And, and, and so you'll, you'll, you'll get this one. So you guys familiar with uh, 1 John 3, 1? How great is the love the Father has lavished. Buttercream icing all over the top of this. Ooh. Those are good. He lavishes us with his love. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Amen. It's amazing. That's part of that tender mercy, the esteem and worth we strive so hard to achieve from others God gives to us by his grace. He loves you, he adores you, he gave his life for you. Once you've tasted of his tender mercy, you, you are ruined for anything else. Once you've tasted of his tender mercy for you, you are ruined, you are wrecked for anything else. He becomes the love of your life. You need to say that to you regularly. You're the love of my life. You're the one that loves me more than anybody. You're the one that's gonna take care of me. You're the one that's looking after me. Nothing can ever separate me from your love. Um, I mean, those are the things that you should be going over and over in your mind as you're reciting and you're basking in the reality of his blessings and, and who he is and what he wants to do. And here's the best, here's the best. We're almost finished. He's given us his presence which will dispel the darkness in our lives and give us peace. Because that's what he's talking about there. And uh, he talks about whereby the sunrise shall, shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, I come from a Pentecostal background and I love my background, but there's a few things that I did not love. And one of the things that I didn't love is that sometimes you'd go into these services and it seemed like these folks would be so preoccupied with, this, with the devil there was more preoccupation and they're kind of more focused on the devil than they were on the Savior. Does that make sense to you? It was almost kind of like, we're going to rebuke the devil. It's like, okay, uh, that kind of freaks me out when you start talking like that. But that's, <laughs> but that's common language sometimes in there. So, so here's the idea and here's the analogy that I learned years ago is that maybe you probably shouldn't focus so much on the devil like trying to rebuke the devil. That's the devil. I'm going to rebuke you. 
Well, let, let Jesus do the rebuking, okay? And so when you walk into a room and it's dark, you don't curse the darkness. What do you do? You turn on the light. Go over there and hit that light switch and turn on the light because why? Light dispels darkness. Yeah, there you go. That's an easy lesson. So don't come in and focus on the darkness. Oh, my goodness, it's so dark in here. What are we going to do? Let's rebuke it. No, turn on the light, okay? <laughs> go over there and flip the light switch. Oh, and that's what we're doing right now. Benedictus, that's blessing. That's Zechariah. That's what he's saying. He's had nine months of silence and solitude. First words that come out of his mouth, blessing. He's celebrating. He's enjoying. He's basking. And he's wanting us to do the same, to bask in his blessings. And that's important. His presence, don't you understand? His presence in our life, that's the best gift of all. Exodus 33, 14, God said to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Joshua 1, 9, before they're going into the promised land, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Psalm 23, 4, woo, I like it. I'm getting a little Pentecostal on you right now. I mean, that's good. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? Fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Oh, his presence. That's what he's talking about. Dispel, it's, that's going to dispel the darkness. As you begin to cultivate that, as you rest and revel in the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, oh, my goodness. In his presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611, yet we tend to work harder at our career, our leisure, our hobbies, than at practicing his presence. I mean, these things are like playing in a mud puddle when, when he has set a table for us. In his presence, filled with love, joy, and peace. Okay, look at verse 80. This is the last verse. We finished up chapter one of Luke. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Who's he talking about there? John the Baptist. Yep. John the Baptist. Here's the last couple fill in the blanks. The more we grow strong in spirit, the more effective we will be in preparing the way for the Lord in the lives of those around us. Quick story. We're finished. 1 Samuel chapter 30. David gives us really a, a great example of what this idea of basking in the, in the glory of God and the beauty and the blessings of God. David and his men come home from war and find their homes, that their homes have been burned and their families have been kidnapped. You guys familiar with the story? It's a, it's a, it's a horrible story, and yet what he does with this. In verse 4 of 1 Samuel chapter 30, then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Are they devastated? Yeah, no doubt. You come home from work and you find that your home has been burned down and your family has been abducted, that's a pretty devastating day. That's a bad day, okay? That's a really bad day. And notice what happens. It gets worse for David. And David was greatly distressed. That's verse 6. For the people spoke of stoning him. How many have ever had your close friends even turn against you when you're in a world of hurt. Yep, 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 yep. It, it, gets, it goes from bad to worse. That's what's happening here. 
For the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Check this out. Here it is. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. You got to learn how to do that. I just taught you how to do that. Zacharias just taught us how to do that. See, David had an equity, spiritual. He had an arsenal. He knew God's word. You need to get into God's word so that you have something to draw upon and that you can revel in the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Next weekend, Christmas Eve services 2, 335, we're gonna unwrap the gift of peace, how you can have peace in stressful times, and we'll look at the birth of Christ and how he brings us that peace. We're gonna look at three ways we lose our peace and five ways we can find peace. No services Christmas Day. We invite you and encourage you to enjoy the day with your family and friends, so let's do that real quick. As we end our service, let's just bask in his blessings as we close in prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? So Father God, your greatness is unparalleled. Your goodness is unimaginable. Your steadfast love is unchanging and your beauty is unsurpassed. Blessed be you, our Lord God, who has visited us, redeemed us, raised up a horn of salvation for us by strengthening us. You have granted us deliverance from our enemies so that we can boldly live holy, belonging to you. You have given us an endless supply of healing and strength and love and comfort and motivation and transformation and fullness of life beginning with forgiveness because you are moved with deep affection for our total well-being. You have given us your presence, your presence in our life which will dispel the darkness in our lives and give us peace. Help us to grow strong in spirit and more effective in pointing others to you as we revel regularly in these blessings and more for your glory and our unspeakable and glorious joy in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys.